Welcome to a live edition of the ONG Strike Zone. It's Brian Fulford, Kelvin Rozier. Soon, I'm sure, very soon, we'll be joined by none other than uh, Kofi Hemingway, who's, uh, I'm sure, getting a few things handled right at the moment and uh, soon to be uh, soon to be joining us. Uh, Kelvin, how you doing, my man? Famconda forever, my brother. Famconda forever. I am doing wonderful, feeling great, man. What about you? Um, I'm 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 well. I'm, you know, uh, trying to. I didn't know, was, to, I didn't know that was a trick question. Well, you know, I'm 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 all about honesty. I want to be honesty. You know, I don't want to just say I'm I'm great because I'm not. You know, kind of a little somber anniversary coming up this week tomorrow and uh yeah. you know it just you know life moves forward so i'm trying to process it all um and and yeah. get ready for this five-day weekend and you know just life rolling man life just kind of keeps you on your toes and so i'm i'm even though i got a few nicks and bruises man i'm still moving along and i'm, and I'm thankful for that so i'm i'm continuing to pray more and uh and and just be thankful for what i do have so there's the honest answer there's the honest answer i, I don't want to just say well when i'm not well i don't want to say great when i ain't great so uh, that's about as real as i can be I understand love all of my brother i'm praying for you i appreciate it i appreciate it hey thanks to everybody out there watching us on uh youtube and watching us on facebook at ONG Strike Zone, please make sure you go ahead and hit that thumbs up button wherever you're watching us. Uh, we are a part of the Black College Sports Network, so follow yeah. us everywhere. Yes, uh, and, I, and, I, and I do think we do hear, we do hear <laughs> Kofi. So it's just a matter of I'm sure at some point we will see him. You know. Oh, that was Kofi. Oh, I thought that was God speaking to us, man. Well, look. <laughs> How we doing? How we doing, Lord? Lord, thank you for bringing in Kofi in in, in the ways that you do. Uh, but hey, hey. Uh, we sure we put a hand with old Eddie King. Eddie, Eddie King come, come sliding in right in the middle of the right in the middle of the uh, the interlude right there when we hit the bridge. Here comes the the the, the, was... the, the fifth member. It's so dark, man. I don't know what's going on. Um, I can see y'all, but y'all can't see me. I can't even see you myself. Just right. Okay. He's about well, to say you know, something we, funny. Working. So <laughs> I wasn't gonna say that was Kelvin. Kelvin was gonna say something funny. I was gonna, say something say I was gonna let it go. Hey. I was gonna let it go. I was gonna let it go. No, I gotta tee it up. I'm gonna hold on to it for a little while longer. <laughs> you gotta tee it up. Okay. All right, all right. Um, so, hey, loaded show for you guys tonight. 
We've uh, a lot of things are happening on the field, on the court. Uh, this we talked about it last week. This is the busy season. You know, obviously we had uh, softball kicking off their season. Uh, sports like basketball and bowling are in play. Tennis is in play. Uh, track and field is about to go into the uh, SWAC Indoor Championships this upcoming weekend. Baseball season kicks off. You know, all of that stuff is happening. And we got our second Rattler into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Finally, the doors of Canton have opened up for uh, – Coach, athletic director, uh, Hall of Fame legend, Ken Riley Sr. And uh, finally, after all the years, the, uh, the the man who has the fifth most interceptions in the uh, National Football League um, as a member of the Cincinnati Bengals 15-year career is going into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And so uh, we'll talk to Ken Riley too coming up in the bottom of the hour. Uh, he and his family, we've seen the photos. I know they had a great weekend. So we're going to get a chance to kind of just catch up, talk to him about the weekend, all that went into it, maybe some things or highlights we might have missed or might not have got it. And then talk about the planning process. You know, yes. uh, that that's what it'll be. That's what it'll be interesting, Kelvin, is to talk about the planning and, and what goes into what? that day. I, yeah, I believe in – late July, uh, early August, right at the start of the uh, football season is when uh, August. Is when that'll happen. Yeah. yeah. So we'll, we'll talk to him and get some more dates there. And then coming up at the top of hour two, we're going to talk to Professor Derek White, who is the author of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Um, the... the uh, very highly uh, acclaimed book that came out in 2019 uh, about uh, uh, Jake Gaither and just a, a historical look back on black college football. And so I know many folks have read the book, uh, but if you have not, it's definitely one of those, and especially if you are a FAMU athletics, FAMU football historian fan it's one of those books you kind of should have on the shelf or at least have access to uh but but we'll, we'll talk to him because i think it's kind of interesting uh kelvin how it, it, a lot of a lot of the points in the book or a lot of the references about that period of that golden age of black college football which it was the 60s i wonder if we're moving into a sort of a new golden age of black college football, just a different kind of, obviously it's different parameters than, than what we had then. But, but for, for today's, for today's times, you know, is it, is it something that's new? You know, is, are we, are we entering into another phase? So that's something we'll talk on. Um, all right. Um, one of the things I'm starting to see here. Now, I, you know, I, I'm just going off of uh, our, our good friend Tamara T. And uh, I think Jay Mack posted this on the uh, in the chat room. There seems to be a a, a lot of condolences going out to uh, Family Board of Trustee Thomas Dorch's family. Um, I, I don't have any. What do we know on this, Kofi or Kelvin? Any information other than? 
what what we're seeing here on the on the feeds? Uh, he passed no, from uh, all... pancreatic cancer. Oh, this is Thomas Dorch did. Correct. Yes. Oh wow. Okay. Wow. Um. The last and the last. Uh, I believe he was. Was he present at not the obviously whatever the last trustees meeting was in twenty twenty two? I thought we had seen him there. I may be mistaken. I hadn't looked, so I, I couldn't tell you. Okay. All right. Well, well, definitely. Uh, that's you know sad news to hear. Um, one of those things we'll kind of look into um uh as we get more information from the university uh to find out more about you know um mr dorch's uh influence on the board sort of the legacy and in, in his time on the board but uh definitely our our condolences to uh to his family and friends and a uh, bit of a bit of a definitely a, a sorrow uh news to hear hate to hate to kind of hear that kind of news uh to uh get the show going um all right yeah. well uh so i wanted to set the table a little bit with everything that we got going on today let's uh let's kind of talk a little bit of softball let's talk some of the positives from the past weekend right uh we we not you know we're not gonna start with any of the negative <coughs> let's start with the positive excuse me uh, FAMU softball went out to Mercer this past weekend, and we were scheduled to play, I think, five, maybe six games, but I think due to weather, we only really got three games in, but very impressive outing in those, uh, in two of those three games. Not really sure what happened in the, in the yeah. third game. I mean, we sure we can talk about it. But uh, we open up the opening game against Hampton University uh, with a 12-4 win. And then the games on Saturday, all the games on Saturday got rained out, if I'm not mistaken, right? Correct. Yeah, all of them got rained out on Saturday. And so that left us with a doubleheader on Sunday where we played Hampton again, which we were scheduled to do. And then we played Mercer, who we were supposed to play on Saturday. Uh, we ended up losing game one to uh, Hampton. Um, anybody got it? What was the score on that one? Uh, that one was... Eight, eight to one. Okay. Eight to one on that one. Yeah. And, uh, and then on uh, game two, we uh, we took out Mercer. I think we were down 1-0 to start opening inning and then uh, put up four runs, I believe, somewhere in the middle, middle innings. Uh, walked away with a 5-1 victory uh, in that contest. Uh, so I was just kind of – and then obviously – you know, we were already had scheduled to play on Valentine's Day uh, one game against Florida State over at Florida State. It turned into a doubleheader 
which uh, which was good. I mean, we needed an extra game. I uh, did not know Florida State was as highly ranked as they were. I mean, I, they always have a good, highly ranked program these days. But uh, I've seen anywhere from number four to number six, somewhere in that. Yeah, they won uh, a national, first game. Yeah, they, they won a national championship a couple of years ago, and um, they played for it, I believe, uh, a year or two ago also. So, yeah, they're they're top. They're always a top five program over the last five years. Yeah, uh, we ended up losing the first one, eight nothing. Second game was kind of was nine to one. Um, I'm gonna give a you know, and, and so when I go back and think about some of the plays, uh, let, let, let's just kind of go through and just some of the highlights, some of the things that you saw from the past weekend, uh, uh, Kelvin, or, or let's go with Kelvin and then Kofi. Any, anything that we saw that that we really liked uh, from the performance this weekend. So it appears we have a number one pitcher. Uh, as a matter of fact, Nadia Zentino was the pitcher of the week for the SWAC. Um, she had a .64 ERA and um, on 11 innings pitch. So uh, congratulations to her. And that was representative in our wins. Um, in our wins, we, we gave up one run, four runs. Uh, so, um, that would, that was a good sign also for it to be this early in the season to be able to put up some points, um, was a good sign. Um, 12 runs, five runs. Uh, so in our wins, the, the run production was there and have two out of early out of conference wins against, um, uh one colonial program in hampton uh and one um uh mercer what the asun uh or uh southern conference so um two yeah so so two strong out of conference wins already in um coach patterson's young career remember this is her first year and she talked about not having a full-time coach she talked about some of the challenges of them making an announcement so late that uh, she, she lost a couple of players. So um, in spite of any adversity, um, we're off to a positive start by all measurements. And uh, I, I look forward to supporting them and, and to see them have continued success. Yeah, uh, we're still at just 18 players. Um you know, obviously that, and that was even mentioned in the uh, the ESPN uh, broadcast. So, you know that that part uh, it's kind of interesting here. You know, going in, we we have a you know I was kind of of the thought that Christiana Beasley was you know she was the pitcher that we knew of. So it's almost like you know, do we have a one A 1A and a one B now? And I think whenever you can go into a weekend and, and, and Coach P talked about having three well, or maybe it was Naya, um, both kind of actually talked about, you know, the fact that we've got three pitchers. Um, and right. so we knew about Christiana. And so now, you know, we're getting a chance to kind of see what the rest of the staff uh, looks like. Um, I got to give a shout out from a from a, you know, just looking at the the box score. Janiah Davis with a. A heck of a weekend 
in center field. Uh, in the opening game, she was uh, two for five. That's two hits and five at bat. Scored three runs. Had an RBI. Um, I think she may have. I don't know if she hit a. I don't know where. I, I, she hit a home run. I thought she hit a home run in uh, one. Maybe I was reading that wrong. Um, maybe the that catch. was in a, another game. Oh yeah, yeah. Now they, they yes, definitely the catch, which was up. And hopefully you guys saw the tweet from the NCAA. Uh, great capture there by. I don't know who on the uh, FAMU athletic staff caught that. I, I didn't catch the name, but outstanding job by the photographer on site for FAMU athletics. I don't know if that was Josh or somebody on the staff that, that takes photos uh, with him, but outstanding catch of the night. Skying over that wall looked like it was at least about six I'm going to say close to maybe seven. That that wall is not, you know, short. That's not a short fence in the center field. And so to see her go up and grab, I'm going to say six. That, that, that wall is six feet high. And so to see her go sky up for that, and you see her arm was at least, what, an arm's length? About a whole arm's length for the wall where she caught that. Yeah. And Man, she looked like Jordan. She was up there. Hey, hey, she that was, she was bad. That was a that was a great catch. Uh, and so, you know, uh, shout out to uh, shout out to Janaya, who uh, you know, great emotions she showed in that game. Uh, even actually had a great play in the Florida State game, where uh, she connected and picked off a picked off a base runner, uh, right. who I think was, home. was trying to get home from second. So right. uh, she connected with uh, Naya Morgan on that. Uh, Naya had a good, good, uh, good outing as well in game number one. Uh, two RBIs, uh, one for three. She had a triple. Um, that was just in game one. I uh, was trying to flip over and see what I saw from the from the Mercer game and see what the box score was at. But any other any other takeaways? From from softball, Kofi, you got anything you want to add there about softball over the weekend? No, it's uh, you know, it's just good to see that this team is competitive, that they're going to um, play hard and uh, execute and really, you know, play at a high level. I mean, beating Hampton is uh, a solid win, a solid D one win, along with beating Mercer on the road. So. Even though we got beat soundly by Florida State uh, in both of the games yesterday, um, the team, the team, I believe, will grow from that. They'll learn from it and uh, continue to compete and fight because our end game is the SWAC championship and hopefully a berth into the NCAA playoffs. Yeah, and, and that contest against uh, Mercer in uh, game number three, uh, it was the, the fourth inning where we tied it up on a Nia Morgan single to center field, uh, which brought in uh, Kiana Watson. Then in the sixth inning, uh, Destiny Cuevas, double to left center, uh, bringing in Watson again. Uh, Watson scored two runs in the contest. 
Uh, Janiah Davis had a hit. Naya had a hit uh, and an RBI. Destiny Cuevas with uh with, with two RBIs on the night. Uh, Amaya Gaynor two for three with an RBI and a run scored. Uh, so just uh just a good day for for FAMU um, in in that respect. Seven hits in total against Mercer. Only allowed three hits. Uh, Nadia Zantano, as you mentioned, uh, walked out of there with the uh, with the complete game. If I'm not mistaken, yep, seven innings pitched, only gave up the one earned run. Um, and so a nice outing, struck out six. Uh, so that was a good good start and a great start for, for FAMU. Uh, and now we're – so we go into the weekend. Now we got another series. And this uh, – you know, talk a little bit about who we have this upcoming week, Kelvin, this upcoming weekend. So we head out to southeastern Louisiana, and the teams that are going to be a part of the field is uh, southeastern Louisiana, who's the whole school, Louisiana Tech, Nichols, and Northwestern State. So it's all the middle middle programs, uh, FCS in football, with the exception of uh, Louisiana Tech. But it's uh, all the Louisiana schools, uh, non-HBCUs pretty much. Uh, and we got a couple of double headers on, I believe, Friday and Saturday, and then a game on Sunday, if weather permits. Oh yeah, yeah. We're in that we're in that kind of that time of the year where we're definitely weather will be a weather will be a thing. So uh, hopefully, all those games. I, I haven't looked here. Um, I'm I'm taking a quick peek here on your athletic site just to see if any of those games will be broadcast um you know if anything hopefully we'll get live stat opportunities via uh uh hammond uh, who, who's the host again the host school southeastern southeastern southeast. southeastern yeah southeast yeah yeah so hopefully they provide uh, some kind of uh, opportunity there to do some uh some live streaming uh, if not that at least some live stats uh, that's what we'd like uh, and if you uh, look, hey, if any Rattlers are in the area, in the Louisiana area, if you happen to be going to those games, you know, we'd love to be able to follow along with, you know, just make sure to tweet out some scores as you're there. Just tweet out, tag at ONG Strike Zone. We'll make sure to retweet um, because um, there is nothing more frustrating than searching for scores. Uh, you know what I'm saying? You know, and so... <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we tried to agree, especially when you think, yeah, there's nothing more frustrating than searching for scores. You know, we're trying to, we're trying to keep up and stay on point with, with our programs and, and we're chasing down score updates. So, uh, you know, so if you're out, if you're going to be at the game, go ahead and send us, you know, tag us on those tweets, uh, in between innings. It doesn't matter. It can be half inning, full inning, whatever, whatever your heart, you know, it entails, and we'll continue to retweet throughout the course of uh, the day. Uh, while we're talking about action on the diamond, we can also kind of mention that baseball is starting up this weekend. And our uh, our baseball team is actually hosting a home series this weekend. So if you're not traveling to Louisiana or if you're not traveling to uh, Alabama, for the basketball games. It's a great opportunity uh, to get out to the baseball diamond and and watch this opening series 
against Eastern Illinois University. Uh, Friday night's afternoon first pitch is scheduled for 4 o'clock. Saturday afternoon, it's a 2 o'clock first pitch. Sunday, 1 o'clock. And uh, if you recall the conversation we had with Coach Shoup now probably about a month ago, uh, at least four, three, four weeks ago, he mentioned that Eastern Illinois has a traditionally good program. So this is not a, this is not a, 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 a this isn't football. This isn't, a, a, you know, you expect an OVC team to maybe be a, a walkover. No, Eastern Illinois, as he said, is, is a traditionally had a tournament good program. Team. Right. Yeah, good tournament eligible team. So, if that's if that's who we want to be, then this is a good opportunity to measure ourselves up against them early on. Um, any any of you guys want to add anything regarding baseball as we're starting up the season? Uh, I'm gonna try to make it to all the games, but I definitely make it at least two of them. Um, and um, you know we've got the reigning swag preseason pitcher of the uh, year. And and vets and I, I imagine he'll get the call first. Uh, I think it's a it's huge to have a known, um, experienced number one um, pitcher uh, in baseball. And I'm 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 gonna be watching the offense though. That's what I'm gonna be looking at: offense and fielding. See, you know, if we can keep our errors down, and then you know what style of play uh, this team is. Whether we got a good mix of power or as well as running the base or, you know, and so forth. So, uh, you know, good competition. So we'll get a good feel on the start off the season. And hopefully a couple, we'll get at least two wins out of here. Yeah, the uh, the SWAT predicted order of finish, uh, just in case anyone forgot, had us predicted uh, somewhere about third in the East. Um. You know, and obviously that's behind Alabama State and Bethune Cookman. Um, we also had uh, Hunter Veets, uh, who you mentioned, a pitcher of the year and preseason All SWAC first team. Uh, we also had uh, Joseph uh, Pierini, who uh, he was an All SWAC second team um, player, played in 59 games last year. Um, he had a good SWAC tournament for those who might have forgotten. And uh, Ty Hainchy, also uh, all SWAC second team. You know, he's one of those young guys that missed maybe about 15 games. He only played in 44 games last year. We saw Ty in the uh, SWAC tournament where he uh, drove in seven, had three doubles, had two home runs, and 12 RBIs in the SWAC tournament. So that's sort of where he broke out. So we're hoping that. You know, health is what this team needs. This team needs to start right. with some good health. So that's uh, that's what we're hoping for for the baseball. But get out to the ballpark this weekend. You know, send us some pictures. Let us know. Walk around the park. You know, uh, take take a look at things. You know, there's, there's opportunities. We talked about opportunities of giving and supporting our baseball program. Uh, but if you guys don't go put eyes on it, you we're just talking. So you got to go put eyes on and see the things that we've been telling you about. And so let's 
you know, let's let's make it known. Let's let's put some visuals out there, and uh, we 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 got to start a campaign. We got to start a campaign, and we gotta we gotta put some pressure and put some heat on a few places and a few people. So be it. We got to make it known that that uh, our program deserves a first class facility. Just leave. Absolutely. Fam uh, yes, condo. Yes. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Hey, before we go to break, let me tell you guys about. The second annual Black Business Expo Tallahassee, which uh, will take place on February 25th at the Moon, is brought to you by Mega Ace Media and the Tallahassee Leon County Office of Economic Vitality. The Black Business Expo will feature financial institutions, agencies, and larger businesses looking to partner with your business. Tallahassee Mayor John Daly and Leon County Commission Chair Nick Maddox are the special guests for the event, and they'll be there to hear what goes on in our businesses. We'll give out $15,000 in grants, and that is definitely a little extra cash that we can all use. For more information, visit online, bbetally.com. That's bbetally.com. All right, coming up on the other side, we're going to talk to Ken Riley the second, and we're going to talk about... Uh, uh, his father induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You're watching the ONG Strike Zone. Brian, Kelvin, and Kofi will be back in just a moment. Now, you can live in Texas and not have a good red meat blend. Texas Cowboy Dust is designed for steak and other red meats. It's out to be my most popular spice blend, made with onions, peppers, ground mushrooms, pink salt, and other spices. Texas Cowboy Dust also goes great with chicken, pork, vegetables, and has a restaurant-quality sheen to gravies and sauces. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's like a loot machine. Going around town trying to get down. Vanilla smoked sea salt seasoning is for seafood. The tarragon and fennel bring out the natural sweetness in seafood. I also use it in rice dishes, on yams, asparagus, blueberry pancakes, and believe it or not, chocolate chip cookies. Vanilla smoked sea salt adds a salty and savory component to sweet dishes that create a symphony for the tongue. Picker upper. 
Bounty picks up messes quicker, and each sheet is two times more absorbent, so you can use less. He's an eight. He's a nine. Bounty, the quicker picker-upper. When you're looking for the latest information on Southern University sports, the Southwestern Athletic Conference, and HBCU athletics, there's only one place to go. Tune in to the Carlos Brown Show, exclusively on the Black College Sports Network. One bite of 100% Angus beef ballpark frank, and you'll say... Hello, summer. Oh, yeah, it's ballpark season. If you think all pads are exactly the same, think again. This is always Ultra Thins reinvented with the always triple protection system. This pad wicks gushes 90% faster, absorbs even more so you can feel dry, and locks odors in. Rethink your pad for up to 100% leak-free and odor-free comfort with the totally reinvented Always Ultra Thins. This is always like never before. At CDW, we get speed as the new currency of success. Our team spends way too much time tending to outdated applications and software when they should be focused on driving application agility and innovation. CDW Amplify Development Services modernizes software and application development to help accelerate innovation and digital transformation. So you mean building new applications, UI, and mobile interfaces? Well, you said you needed to innovate more quickly. Oh, so he's a listener. To do more at scale, trust CDW Amplify Development Services. Bounty versus the old family dish towel. Drying with a fresh sheet of Bounty leaves your hands cleaner than a used dish towel that can carry and redistribute food residue. So ditch the dish towel for better hand hygiene. Bounty, the quicker picker-upper. For 200 years, Montgomery, Alabama has been making history by people who had the courage to stand up for change. Today, this riverfront city has been reborn, embracing the past and looking forward to the future. From the National Memorial for Peace and Justice to the stage of the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. This is where history was and is made. We are proud to call Montgomery home, and together, we can be the change. to be a rattler but today it's a little bit sweeter i'm willie simmons head football coach here on the house of seven hills taking this time to say congratulations to the late great ken riley on being selected to the 23 class of the nfl hall of fame uh, your story career uh, is one that we know all too well here on the house of seven hills uh, and with the cincinnati Bengals. Uh, and it's just great that you've finally been recognized by your peers as one of the all-time greats uh, long overdue uh, and the only summer moment is that you're not here to celebrate in person. But thank you for what you've meant to this sport. Thank you for what you've meant to this program. Uh, everyone back in Polk County, uh, you've just been uh, just an amazing individual. Thank you for your overwhelming support of me during my time here as the head football coach. You were one of the first individuals uh, that reached out once I took this position. And so just being a great ambassador, uh, a great supporter, and just an amazing role model for so many. Uh, it's just a great day to be able to honor you during this time. Congratulations. Uh, congratulations to the Riley family, everyone who had a hand in making this possible. Go Rattlers. All right. 
Welcome back to the ONG Strike Zone. Brian, Kelvin, and look who we got. It's Kofi Hemingway uh, live and direct. And that, of course, was the words of our head ball coach, Willie Simmons, uh, congratulating uh, Ken Riley um, posthumously for uh, being inducted into the class of 2023 Pro Football Hall of Fame. He will join uh, his, his, uh, his bust will be joined by other class members such as Rondé Barber, uh, Coach Don Coriel, uh, Chuck Howell, Joe Klecko, Daryl Revis. Uh, I believe that is uh, also Joe Woo! Thomas, Zach Thomas, and Demarcus Ware. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Did I say a name that caught you by surprise there? Yes, sir, man. I, I have to, I have to, I have to side with Dion on this one, buddy. Uh, we, we kind of let in, you know, anybody in in some cases. Then somebody deserving like uh Ken, you know, had to wait all this time and go through the scene committee. And then I, I hear names like Joe Klecko and uh, Zach Thomas, and I'm just saying they're good players, man. But Zach I wouldn't Thomas call them Hall of Famers. Zach Thomas. Need to be in the darn Hall of Fame. Just, just like, just I like a dolphin. Yeah, you tried us. Zach Thomas yeah, he, needs no, to Zach, be in the Hall Zach of Thomas. Fame. Oh, he Zach was a Thomas good player, man. He, he wasn't dominant. His statistics say so. His teammates exactly. say so. Exactly. I mean, that ain't even no real. I'm argument. just saying. Wonderful. Then uh, Erlacher from the Bears. I'm like, what are y'all talking about? Now, I think you could debate the Rondé Barber, Daryl Revis thing. I mean, you know, I think Joe Klecko too. I think. You, uh, well, Joe Klecko was a part of what the Jets was it? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean. I, I don't know all the Klecko stats. I mean, you know, now I here here's what I do say. Here's what I do say in that in that deck. I always say that the bar is a decade, you know. So I, I always look and say, what did you do in that ten year time span? And for seventy to seventy five percent of that ten year time span, were you one of the best? You know what I'm saying? I mean, because granted, you may take out a year or two in his first rookie year. elite. Elite, not yeah, but that, good. Well, elite, okay. But is elite is elite Pro Bowl or All Pro? See, some people will say it's all. Well, some people will say it's Pro Bowl. I will say it's All Pro. But then again, you know, you can't put everybody in All Pro because All Pro <coughs> is the best. Uh, what twenty two, or that they're about the best twenty two. So you know. You know, I, I I don't you know like I said, uh, Demarcus Ware. You know, I don't I don't I'd have to, uh, you know, I, I'd have to go back and look at the stats. He he, you know, I <laughs> that might be. I, and then again, you know, guys like look, no receivers. How did Reggie Wayne get le left off this list? Come on now, I'm just saying. I agree with you on that one. Now. With that one, but let's let's look at this right. Zach Thomas played in 184 <laughs> games. Brian Erlacher played in 182 games. What? 
He had uh, 627 assists. Erlacher had 314. He had 17 interceptions, and Erlacher had 22. He had 16 forced fumbles. Erlacher had 11. Both of them scored four touchdowns. So what you're saying is... Zach Thomas's induction into the Hall of Fame I, is warranted. How I, I many I, I mean, healthy uh, years did Erlacher have compared to Zach? I don't know because I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean Zach played in Zach played in just about every I'm game. not saying hey hey I'm not saying he wasn't a, a good player. I just question whether he was a Hall of Famer. I think it's questionable. I ain't saying no, I ain't saying yes. I think it's questionable, but it's all, all good. Right. He in there, it don't matter. <laughs> at, yeah, at this point it don't matter. Well, let's talk about let's uh let's get let's bring in onto the show right now uh Ken Riley the second. Uh, to Didn't talk to us. About Zach Thomas. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> hey, uh, we, joining us right now, Ken Riley II. Uh, Ken, welcome back to the show, and uh, congratulations to uh, you, your family, the Riley family, and uh, the Bengals organization, everybody who had a part uh, in, in your father's journey uh, where he is now a pro football Hall of Famer. How you feeling tonight, Ken? <laughs> the sniper guy. Right. No, no, I think like might, be, the, might be. Yeah, we was trying to get the audio. I saw him with his Bluetooth on, trying to get the the Bluetooth uh, fixed and all of that stuff. Um, so we'll give him a we'll give him a second to get all that uh, squared away. Um, so yeah, uh, what was yeah? Uh, some of the I was just looking here at some of the modern era finalists. Now I, I'm just gonna say a name, and you tell me I agree. Well, now Revis is in. Uh, who else was a modern yeah. guy? Mo Revis, where? I was. I was talking with Joe Thomas. Barber. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm gonna throw names at you, right? Dwight Freeney, Hall of Famer. Oh no, brother! Wow. Okay, you paused. Okay, that's fine. I'll let that go. I'm, I'm like, huh? You paused? Really? Okay. I, I'm biased, so I get it. Uh, Devin Hester. Yes, he was elite. As a specialist, he was elite. As a special teams guy. As a special teams guy. Let's see. Okay. Uh, here's an interesting debate: Tory Holt or, uh, well, we'll come back to that debate here. Let's. Uh, Let's see if we got uh, Ken here. Ken, how you doing? Can you hear us? Ken, can you hear us? He went back off. Yeah, let, let, let's do this. Let's take a quick pause, come back out. Sometimes when we take a little quick commercial break and get our audio settings, we'll get a, we'll get a good, clean audio. So let's take a quick break. Coming back with Ken Riley second on the other side. Oh. That spin class was brutal. Well, you can try using the Buick's massaging seat. Ooh, yeah, that's nice. Can I use Apple CarPlay to put some music on? Sure. It's wireless. Pick something we all like. Okay, hold on. What's your Buick's Wi-Fi password? Buick Envision 2021. Oh, you should pick something stronger. That's really predictable. That's a really tight spot. Don't worry. I used to hate parallel parking. Me, Me too. too. Hey. 
really outdid yourself. Yes, we did. The all-new Buick Envision, an SUV built around you, all of you. Now you can live in Texas and not have a good red meat blend. Texas Cowboy Dust is designed for steak and other red meats. It's out to be my most popular spice blend, made with onions, peppers, ground mushrooms, pink salt, and other spices. Texas Cowboy Dust also goes great with chicken, pork, vegetables, and has a restaurant-quality sheen to gravies and sauces. It's like a loot machine. Vanilla smoked sea salt seasoning is for seafood. The tarragon and fennel bring out the natural sweetness in seafood. I also use it in rice dishes, on yams, asparagus, blueberry pancakes, and believe it or not, chocolate chip cookies. Vanilla smoked sea salt adds a salty and savory component to sweet dishes that create a symphony for the tongue. Nope. Nope. Want him? Ooh, I like him. Quick, the quicker picker-upper. Bounty picks up messes quicker, and each sheet is two times more absorbent, so you can use less. He's an eight. He's a nine. Bounty, the quicker picker-upper. You're looking for the latest information on Southern University sports, the Southwestern Athletic Conference, and HBCU athletics. There's only one place to go. Tune in to the Carlos Brown Show, exclusively on the Black College Sports Network. One. All right, Rattler Nation, uh, join us in uh, congratulating uh, Ken Riley II and his family and everybody that did a part or had a part in making sure and finally getting his uh, father, Ken Riley, into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Congratulations, Ken, to you, the family. Uh, how you, how you feeling right now? Uh, still just trying to let it all sink in. Uh, definitely uh, excited and uh, proud that uh, he's finally he's finally getting his due justice and uh, made it into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So it's you know it's an exciting time. Share with us, uh, us if you can, some of the behind the scenes, just emotions of that day. Um, you know, you, you've gone through the process a few times earlier and, and there's the the champion by so many people uh, and, and then to finally uh, to get the notification share share with us some some things that that you can recall about that moment. Uh, I, 
I, this this was just like uh, this call here was it wasn't as emotional for me. The previous call was the one because he had never been a finalist, and I knew that once you come out of the senior category as a finalist, it was you know your chances of getting in was you know pretty strong. So that call that I got in July, that was the one that you know the emotions just just overtook me and I couldn't even get it out to my mom when I, or my sisters when I was trying to explain to them that he's a finalist. So uh, the call two weeks ago from uh, Mr. Jim Porter and Anthony Munoz, it was just more of like a relief. You know, he, he's finally made it, but it wasn't as big a surprise as it was in July. Kelvin, go ahead. So, Ken, I want to, uh, uh, again, say congratulations, but I want you to talk about the plan moving forward. Uh, I know there's a lot of Rattlers that are planning to uh, be up there on August 5th to uh, celebrate um, the enshrinement also. But uh, as far as uh, yourself and family and so forth, uh, what you can share, kind of kind of kind of talk about I don't know if y'all already had some plans in place and you're looking to build upon that but just kind of talk about some of the planning between now and and the enshrinement ceremony well in the next uh, couple of weeks or so we have to go up to Canton and we work with the Pro Football Hall of Fame and they kind of walk us through the process so uh, the ceremony is actually the first you know week in uh, August and I think like the fifth, sixth that weekend, the game's on Saturday. So like I said, the next couple of weeks, they'll kind of walk us through the process and uh, kind of give us a guideline of what to expect and, and how to go moving forward. So we're basically working with the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame and they, they kind of uh, organize everything. And, you know, I'll have more information at that time because it's unknown. We've ne never been in this, uh, you know, through this process. So. We kind of just follow their lead as far as that. So who's going to do the acceptance uh, uh, and who's going to do a speech or video or what have you? Have y'all even thought about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll do it. Uh, my mom's there. Her sisters will be there. But, you know, I've kind of been the face of it, been pushing this for for the longest now. But it's, it's a blessing, to, you know, to have my mom and sister and family there. Uh, so I'll, I'll do the you know, the, you know, acceptance speech and unveiling and uh, just really looking forward to that. But yeah, I'll probably be the one doing it. Okay. <clears throat> Go ahead, Cove. Go ahead, Cove. Okay. Now, if you do that speech, you got to come out there and say, you know, not when the dark clouds gather over the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> You got to, you that, can't be holding back that. on it either. You got to bring <laughs> it right there. When the dark clouds hey, gather over lady. the horizon. I'm going to say it, man. I can't duplicate that, so I, I, I know to stay in my lane. I'm going to work with you on it. I'm going to work with you. You can't be no worse than Dr. Larry Robinson on it. So you you got to have a little something. You can't be no worse than that right now. If you let me work with you, I promise you'll bring the house down. All the way down. No, but, I got uh, you. I got you. <laughs> but seriously, man, I was so happy. I'm going to tell you a Ken Riley story. So 
So I'm out and I'm going to class and right in front of Gaither Gym, right in front of Gaither Gym, there is, they had these little bushes. And in those bushes, they had those little gray sparrows with the, uh, you know, those little trees. You get close to the nest, those birds will like literally come after you. Right. So, man, I was walking and minding my own business. I was just as cool and calm and everything. And I felt something touch the top of my head. So I was like, what in the world is that? And I felt it again. I was like, what in the world is it? I looked up and that bird was like flying and looking at me like, you done came <laughs> too close to my nest. You have come too close to my nest. So I took my backpack off and I started jumping and swinging at the dirt bird. And I started swinging at the bird. And then, you know, I went to class. But afterwards, I had to go back because we were doing marketing for family football at the time. So your daddy said, son, I didn't know you had it in you. You were swinging <laughs> that back. <laughs> he saw you from his own. He was like, man, I didn't know you could jump that high, bro. You were, you were swinging. <laughs> That backpack, something fierce, bro. I was like, yes, sir. I was so embarrassed. I was like, right. I've been attacked by a bird. And of all the people that would have seen that, I was like, Coach Riley saw me fighting a little old bird. And <laughs> I was so embarrassed. That's funny. <sighs> all right, go ahead, Brian. Um. <laughs> Ken, I'm I'm curious. Any uh, you know, obviously with all the planning, I mean, uh, you know, uh, the hometown, uh, Polk County, I know will be a big part of the celebration. What what's uh, maybe share with people uh, something that uh, you, your 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 dad was was famous for saying, or or maybe a a a quote or uh, a Bible verse. I don't, anything that, that sort of kind of resonates is something that, that sticks with you and you heard it uh, through, through his years, uh, maybe as a player and later on as a coach, uh, just something, something that, that kind of sticks out in this time. Cause I, I have a feeling it'll be something that you may end up sharing uh, in August. Uh, that's a tough one there. I don't know. Um, I know a lot of my teammates, you know, probably have would be able to do a better job of that because to me, he still was just my father. So, um, I don't really have a you know, a saying or anything like that, but I'm sure like my teammates would definitely uh have some uh some of those quotes and jokes, and you know, uh, but right offhand, I, I can't really think of anything that uh you know resonates. Uh, but uh, like I say, as far as the as far as the speech, um, and I and I had to speak uh, this weekend, like we were in the Phoenix, and it, it was kind of tough. Like, okay, do I approach it as what he would say, or approach it from my viewpoint? And I was talking to uh, Ronnie Barber, and he was like, "You got a unique perspective," so he would go at it as like my my viewpoint, and uh, so I, that's probably what I'll stick with uh, at that time. But um, you know, he. He had a lot of, you know, a lot of good saying, you know, he was a, a God fan, man, always told me to keep God first. And, uh, but yeah, I don't have anything that really just, just sticks out that, you know, I can think of that comes to mind right now. All right, all right, go ahead, Kelvin. 
so Ken, do you have uh talk about some of the memories you have of your father playing in an NFL? I know some of that time you was fairly young and everything, but uh just talk about uh maybe one or two things that you do recall um fondly uh, enjoyed watching your dad play the game. And then I know you got to see him a little bit in when he interacted with some of his uh teammates after he had been playing. How about sharing a story or two that you remember that made maybe st stood out that uh that they talked about and, and, and laughed about? Yeah. Well, actually, I remember a whole lot because him playing for so long, 15 years, from 69 to 83, when he retired, he was 12. So I was always a big fan of football and loved it. So from the age of five to six, I can remember all the games. You know, I was being living in Florida, we didn't get, they don't, we didn't have direct TV in the NFL package. So I wasn't able to watch the game. So, you know, at halftime, I was always trying to see, you know, the Tampa Bay Bucks game because, you know, we were 30 miles outside of Tampa. So, you know, the Tampa Bay Bucks, they have the halftime show, and I'm trying to see, you know, if they have any highlights, you know, the Bengals, and then there was also the NFL, what's the, uh, we should be on HBO, NFL, uh, whatever that show is, you know, then they show all the highlights for that week, or Nick, Bonnie, Connie, and all right. that stuff, so that's the Right. But, so, yeah, I remember all the games. I was always watching, and uh, just the love for football, and, uh, you know, um, so I definitely remember him playing and going to uh, enjoy it when he came down and played the Bucks. And then in November, we will always go up for Thanksgiving uh, to some games. So, um, you know, I just thought it was normal, though. I mean, I, I, as I got older and once I started playing, I really just, my respect for him just grew like leaps and bounds because, you know, I played defensive back and, you know, interceptions are hard to come by. And uh, as I grew older, I'm just like, man, this this guy did it for 15 years, all at corner, never played defense until he got to the pros. And at that time, um, it was rough back then. Uh, it was like six, seven weeks of training camp. And when he got drafted, he said it was over 40 some guys in the secondary trying to vie for like 11 spots, 10 spots. So the pressure that he was under, he just got married, has a child on the way, you know, maybe on the you know, sister, you know, Kim on the way. And to go there knowing that he has to beat out 30 some guys and never played that position and to go in and start since his rookie year from 69 to 83, all in the corner, man, I mean, that's, that's a, that's, that's a story in itself. So it, it's, it's, that's where the frustration has come from over these years that he never got the credit that he deserved because anybody that has played the game, you know, on any type of level knows how hard it is to get interceptions. And, uh, you know, year after year to be under pressure because they'll cut you, you know, uh, Coach Paul Brown cuts him by the halftime. So it's pressure. You know, you're playing with grown men. You got, you know, your livelihood on the line. So to do that for 15 years, and to do it at a high level, even though he retired, he led the conference in interceptions. So as I grew up, grew older, I began to understand like he made it look easy or didn't show that it was pressure. So like I said, he was my father, but I have all the respect in the world for him. And then even after he, you know, finished, he was just the humble guy. You would never know that, you know, if you meet him, you wouldn't know he was, you know, fifth all the time. You know, that wasn't his that wasn't his style. He felt that his work should speak for himself, but 
He was just a uh, a humble man. Uh, he loved his community. He loved Florida and them. You know, he had, I don't know, a lot of people don't know that he had opportunity. He left Green Bay, the Green Bay Packers. He was coaching with Coach Greg when he first retired in the secondary coach. Probably could have been an NFL head coach, but he left to come to Florida and them. And then after that, he stayed here where he could, he had opportunity to coach at SMU and Georgia Tech. But one of the things he really loved, fam. He loved the school that gave him the opportunity. He loved his hometown, Bartow. And those were things that, you know, he gave up and sacrificed a lot because his love for Florida and them and also, you know, for his family because he, he, he knew that he had sacrificed so much during those years you know, being a way that he definitely wanted to, um, you know, keep us close. So he turned down a lot of opportunities that a lot of people don't even know. So that's where my respect and love come from, come from, because like I said, he was definitely a family man and he was, uh, he did things the right way. So, um, yeah, definitely, um, like I said, that was my hero. Absolutely. 100%. Hey, um, Kim, before before we let you go, I, I'm hopeful that a, along this journey that uh, you're, you're able to to document this um, in some form or fashion, because I think it, just that little nugget that you shared could lead, could, I, my mind is just, I'm like, wow, there's so many more questions and so many more I want to hear and learn about. Uh, and like I said, we, you're, you, while we were on campus, like I said, your dad was the coach when I was there and the AD when I left. And but he was like you said, just very quiet. Uh, you know, you like you said, known he was all of these things to so many people. And so I, I, I just hope that we get a chance to really enjoy this journey with you over the next several months and learn more and more. Uh, about that era of football, your dad in that era of football, uh, you know, and I, I just want to give you the last word. Any Anybody that, that you want to shout out uh, or, or you want us to follow and just to kind of so that we can kind of join you on this journey towards Canton? Uh, well, I got another quick story. I'm just talking, I'm talking to a lot of former players, you know, Terry Mickens, the great Terry Mickens, you know, he called me, we were talking and, and it just, and he said that he wanted to apologize to me for my dad, you know, because he was like, I really didn't know how great he was, you know, because that wasn't his personality. He's like, if I would have known the type of player he was back then, because, you know, like I said, they joke and do all these things because that, that wasn't his style. But he was like, I would have been in his office, his office every day, you know, picking his brain. And it's like he didn't realize the, the wealth of knowledge and um you know, the, the skill that my father possessed in doing his playing day. So he said he just, he didn't know. And he was like, he wished he would have known and taken advantage of, um, you know, learning from the best, which he, he did. Like I said, I told him too, it's kind of like, you don't realize it when you're in it, you know, you just say, okay, but that's the kind of person he was. He wasn't walking around with, you know, with the S on his, you know, shoulders and he just, that wasn't his style. But to answer your question, man, I just want to thank all of you guys for your uh, support. You know, um, Florida and um, um, alumni, you know, Vaughn did a great job. Vaughn's been there, um, you know, 
doing a lot and you guys doing your show and so you know just everybody that's supporting him like i said it takes it, it takes a, you know a village and uh you know from his hometown bar to into the florida and him and just the cincinnati who they nation man it's just been so many people like you know i hate to name names because it's been so many people you know uh fighting uh for us in this cause and just to finally you know have his name called is uh like i said it's just uh it's, it's just closure for me and just excited, you know, bittersweet, but, uh, no, he's finally, he can't take it away. He's in there now. So. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Congratulations to, uh, to, to you, the family and, uh, to, uh, to Kim Riley and, and definitely uh, we, we look forward to, to, uh, learning more and sharing more, you know, as we find more in, we'll definitely share more, uh, with our audience and friends as we go. So uh, uh, to that, uh, Ken, we'll talk. Hey, anytime you want to share something with us or come on, uh, we, we're yours, man. Just just say, just give us an, uh, a call, a tweet, text, whatever. We'll, we'll carve out some time, man. Uh, you, you, got, you got us the rest of this year, man, whenever you want to jump in, all right? I appreciate it, man. Y'all keep up the good work, man. I, like I said, I'm proud of y'all boys. Y'all doing it. And like I said, I know them guys from high school, so... You know, we played together. So uh, thank you for y'all's support, man. Y'all keep doing what y'all doing. Appreciate Bless you, man. Appreciate it. All right. Rattler Nation, you make hey. sure you uh, go follow Ken Riley on, on Twitter uh, and make sure you uh, you get behind and, and we'll stay, uh, keep everybody up to date. We're going to come back with Professor Derek White on the other side, talk about the book Blood, Sweat, and Tears. After these words, you're watching the ONG Strike Zone. If you think all pads are exactly the same, Think again. This is Always Ultra Thins reinvented with the Always Triple Protection System. This pad wicks gushes 90% faster, absorbs even more so you can feel dry, and locks odors in. Rethink your pad for up to 100% leak-free and odor-free comfort with the totally reinvented Always Ultra Thins. This is always like never before. At CDW, we get speed as the new currency of success. Our team spends way too much time tending to outdated applications and software when they should be focused on driving application agility and innovation. CDW Amplify Development Services modernizes software and application development to help accelerate innovation and digital transformation. So you mean building new applications, UI, and mobile interfaces? Well, you said you needed to innovate more quickly. Oh, so he's a listener. To do more at scale, trust CDW Amplify Development Services. Bounty versus the old family dish towel. Drying with a fresh sheet of Bounty leaves your hands cleaner than a used dish towel that can carry and redistribute food residue. So ditch the dish towel for better hand hygiene. Bounty, the quicker picker-upper. For 200 years, Montgomery, Alabama has been making history by people who had the courage to stand up for change. Today, this riverfront city has been reborn, embracing the past and looking forward to the future. From the National Memorial for Peace and Justice to the stage of the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. This is where history was and is made. We are proud to call Montgomery home, and together we can be the change.
Welcome back to the ONT Strike Zone. Brian, Kelvin, Kofi, and uh, Marcus Green joining us. And it's a pleasure to have him on right now. Professor Derek White, uh, who is a professor of history and African-American uh, studies at the uh, University of Kentucky. But also, he is author of the book Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, which chronicles the development of black college football in the 20th century. Uh, there you got there you see Marcus holding up a copy. One of those one of those books, the the Mount Rushmore books that uh, you have to have on the on the shelf if you consider yourself a FAMU athletics, FAMU football fan. Uh, Derek, how you doing tonight? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, of course, thanks to Marcus for helping to, to do a lot of the behind the scenes uh, and putting this together. So, so Derek, you, obviously, just the last segment we had on uh, Ken Riley's uh, um, uh, son, Ken Riley, too. Uh, we were just talking about this offline. Ken Riley was one of the last, uh, second to last quarterbacks under uh, Jake Gaither. What, what was it like for quarterbacks like Ken and other quarterbacks who played under Coach Gaither back in back in the 60s? I mean, um, I think a couple of things, right? One is that when you look at the, the late 50s, early 60s teams, they were running the football. So to play quarterback meant that you were handing off and running the ball uh, in the split line tee. Uh, Ken Riley is really one of the first quarterbacks uh, when Gaither starts to change his um, offensive playbook a little bit and kind of moving away from the split line T teams have kind of figured it out. They wanted to throw the ball more. Uh, and so he's one of the first quarterbacks to really get that opportunity to kind of uh, expand the kind of offensive playbook uh, from what Gaither had done probably most successfully from 1945 through about, you know, the mid 60s, 64, 65. Marcus, I'll give you the give you the, I'll give you the first question in here with to uh, with with Derek. Go ahead, Marcus. All right. Well, thank you, Doctor White, for coming on, accepting our invitation. I guess my question, um, I'm intrigued by the concept that you call the sporting congregation, and any parallels between what existed then, which we know in the times of segregation probably was a lot stronger and anything that you've seen recently with the resurgence and interest in HBCUs and actually some top athletes actually going out and coming back to HBCUs and a proliferation of coaches that still exist and how that has played a role in some of that resurgence. No, that's a great question. I think, uh, you know, in the book, I talk about this idea of the sporting congregation. I thought it was a really, I think, appropriate term to really kind of get at the broader context that supports these athletic programs, whether it's Florida A&M or Grambling, whether we're talking about football, basketball or track. Really successful programs um, require not only great athletes and great coaches, but they required administrators to be supportive of these athletic programs. They required uh, alumni, it required fans, but it also required media, right? And it meant that the black press was integral in, you know, supporting um, black colleges and making the claim for HBCU, HBCU football in particular, that it was on par and in many cases better than its white counterparts, even though seg segregation had kept the kind of cut a line and kept these two, two sides 
of um, the scrimmage uh, away from one another. I think one of the things that we see is that the, the sporting congregations never goes away, but I think your point about its strength and its depth has changed dramatically. I think we're in a moment now, you guys are doing, we got new age black, black media like this show right here. But the longstanding, you know, when we think about, um, you know, I tell students all the time, at one point, the Chicago Defender, for instance, had over half a million in subscriptions, right, after World War II, right? And that is a huge number for a paper out of Chicago, that it was read all up and down because of the way railroads ran from Mississippi to New Orleans, that you could read about, um, do, you could read the Chicago Depend Defender. And the same was true for the Pittsburgh Courier, the Atlanta Daily World, uh, the Norfolk well, News, um, and even the New York um, Amsterdam News as well. And that black press is really the kind of bedrock for telling the story about the greatness of HBCU sports. And so when we talk about how these develop into, whether it's the Orange Blossom Classic or the Bayou Classic, that we're also talking about that entire network. And in the present, one of the kind of damaging things of, of integration is that it weakens it, right? It takes it takes it pulls out kind of these foundational pieces we still got coaches we still got great players we still got great fans uh but the media is one of the most uh, you know one of the most obvious things that you can see in the book i talk a little bit about you know when you when you research a book and you're trying to cover 100 years of college football you, you're really trying to find i had to rely only on black media and it's really by the time you get to about the 1970s you see this massive shift where I have to read the Tallahassee Democrat to get the play, the updated reports, right? Like, because the Atlanta Daily World is no longer covering the SIAC, right? That the black newspapers, because of folks um, that they are not as, they're not being published as frequently, the sports pages are tremendously um, not as robust as they were even a decade before. And so what we get is when we think about the integration of Southern teams in the South, pulling out players and in some cases coaches right i think uh, i just saw ken riley's son talk about how his dad had come from the packers you know many of those play many of those coaches never came back to hbcu football that they stayed in the professional ranks or they got jobs at predominantly white institutions as assistant coaches i mean rudy hubbard comes from ohio state which is you know which is his trajectory back to to famu right but a lot of coaches don't do that right and i think that's the exception rather than the rule uh, and so what we see now in this contemporary moment, though, is this moment that, like, I think probably since, I would argue this Trayvon Martin generation, right, that this generation that has grown up since 2012 has really began to rethink what they want out of a college experience, and that there's something that Black colleges provide that um, it, that provides a kind of level of, of love and protection that is hard that can't be replicated at pwis no matter how much money we spend on diversity and inclusion it just does not work that way and so these material you know this is challenge is split you know between material resources and human resources and black colleges have always had human resources and really what we've seen because of segregation because of discrimination uh that the material resources waxed and waned uh, and that we've seen a small kind of uptick in this. And I think that we've been able to see some of the, the, the transformations in the last, you know, five, six, seven years of some of the very top athletes um, coming to black colleges and considering them as part of the finalists for their decision making process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go ahead, Kelvin. Doug, I, I'm known to ask compound questions, so 
uh, you, you're a very bright and articulate guy. I know you're going to knock it out of the park regardless. So I have a, uh, I have a three for, for you. I want you to, uh, to introduce you to our audience. I just want you to talk about your, your background and, um, you know, then I want you to talk about why you did this book and what do you hope people to get from it? And then thirdly, what surprised you, if anything? Oh, that's a good question. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm at the University of Kentucky. I'm originally a Lexington native, um, born and raised in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, uh, I went to the University of Maryland and then Ohio State for PhD. But my, my mom, my first college experience was at Kentucky State. My mom's a Kentucky State graduate. So I had been going to games and homecomings long before I fully understood what any of these things meant. Um, and then my brother, who's a little younger than me, uh, is a FAMU graduate. And so when I started, I was teaching at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton. That was my first job out of graduate school. And I was teaching a sports history class and I was having these students do a what I call a kind of an institutional biography, writing sports biography, writing about the history of the athletic departments uh, at the various institutions in the state of Florida. And as you guys know, we've got, you know, old schools, Florida A&M, University of Florida, but you also got new schools like Florida uh, Atlantic and, and FIU and South Florida. Those schools were founded in the 60s. And so it made for a really kind of compelling uh, assignment for them to talk about the different kinds of histories. What does it mean to start an athletic program in the 1960s or 1970s versus starting one at the beginning of this 20th century? And what kind of problems does that pose? What kinds of histories does that tell? Uh, and students, as they as they are, came back and like, I can't find anything about Florida A&M. And I'm like, I can't believe this, honestly, because I knew my brother was a graduate. I knew Jake Gaither was there. I knew that they had this tremendous uh, athletic program. You know, I knew Althea Gibson. Like, I was like, there's got to be something done. And um, and so I was helping these students out. And there was, you know, not a lot of scholarship that had been produced at this time. And so I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity. I've been looking to tell a sport a story about uh, telling a story about uh, sports, um, looking at really trying to figure out an HBCU story to tell. Uh, and this was the one I was in Florida. This it spoke to me. Um, I was also like, you know, I felt this is I can say this on this show. I feel like Eddie Robinson, who I think is amazing, got it gets always he became representative of the entire black college football experience. Right. And I think there was positives right. and negatives with that. What you know, the positives, obviously, is that Eddie Robinson is unquestionably one of the most important coaches in college football history. But the negative is that it obscured the kind of differences in philosophy, uh, in approaches and success that you see across the landscape of black college football. And I thought that Jake Gaither, because of his history, starting at Knoxville College, working at Henderson and then St. Paul's and then eventually at Florida A&M, gave us an opportunity for me to tell a different kind of story, to tell kind of a much longer story about black colleges and through that lens. Um, and then I think what surprised me, I think this is the last question, right? I gotta keep all these questions. Yes. What surprised you, me? You did what good. Surprised me, uh, what surprised me, I think what surprised me was um, I knew the kind of level of discrimination. I was surprised as a historian to be able to find the document, the clear documentation. Um, 
And so probably my, my, one of the examples I found in the book that was really most compelling for me was that the state of Florida created what they called the, the race day fund. They had one day of horse racing at the end of the season. And at the, all the receipts from this one day of horse racing was basically used for athletics and it got subdivided. And so Florida got a percentage, Florida A&M got a percentage, and then Florida State got a percentage. And, and that those percentages, as you can imagine, you know, like Florida got the largest percent percentage. Um, uh, Florida State then after 1947 got a, a, another percentage, you know, not as much as Florida. Uh, and then, bam, you got the smallest percentage. And what that did was twofold, right? One, it allowed for Florida, like it's one of the reasons that Florida A&M could be so dominant in that period. But two, it also put them behind the eight ball when it came to the other PWIs, the, the other public PWIs in the state. And so we, we talk about this often in abstract or in theory about discrimination that we know. But to have the actual documentation to say this is the percentage and know exactly how much money that meant for the athletic department in a given year meant that I could really document and really tailor it out. And so I think there's always, you know, historians are always we have a good idea of what's there, but finding the actual, as we say, smoking gun uh, is often a right. very valuable piece. And so I think that that's, you know, that was really for me, that was fascinating because I, you know, I, I, you want to be as precise as possible when you're trying to outline these kinds of uh, information. Absolutely. Awesome. Wow. Go ahead, Kofi. So <clears throat> obviously uh, I'm sure you're aware of the lawsuit that uh, our six family students are um, going or suing the state of Florida on behalf of Florida and university. And I wanted you to talk about that a little bit and, if they contacted you at all um, to get some additional information, because I believe that it would be good. And I want you to talk about critical race theory and uh, DeSantis's um, issue with it and why or what we need to do to strategically oppose it. Oh, wow. Okay. Um I have not heard from the students. Um, I think the students, uh, I think this is an important lawsuit. I think that it, it is, you know, in the state of Baltimore, in the state of Maryland, Morgan State successfully won its lawsuit against the state of Maryland. Uh, and then in Tennessee, I think Tennessee State has, has won some uh, reparations in terms of its underfunding. I think this is the first step and an important first step. But I think it, what it does is it also obscures. I mean, those numbers are only going back to like the mid 1980s. It does not tell us about anything since uh, World War II. And the reason I think World War II is so important is that, um, you know, that's where the GI Bill, that this is where, especially in the state of Florida, this is where we start to really see the rapid expansion of higher education in the state, in that state, right? And so in the state of Florida, you know, this transition from uh, a Florida state from the women's college to a co-ed college could only happen because of the GI Bill. Right. Uh, and that the GI Bill uh, meant that it added, made Florida state an immediate competitor to Florida A&M for resources. Right. Because the resources are already finite across the state. And as the state popula state's population grew uh, across the mid 20th century, um, the creation of all the what we would think of as kind of 
now we wouldn't call them regional campuses, but that's what they are. Central Florida, South Florida, Florida Atlantic, yep. Florida International, North Florida, those are all siphoning off resources uh, from uh, Florida A&M, who has a kind of a historic claim to being higher on the list. And so in the previous uh, administration, I think Ritz Sots did this, where they created this new funding mechanism in which um, yeah, they created a new formula to figure out how much of the state money that you're going to get. It was a formula that already was discriminatory towards Florida A&M, right, who are taking on more students, percentage, higher percentage of Pell Grant students, taking on, uh, uh, because it's not, uh, it has a high kind of uh, R2 research rank that it also privileged R1 research schools, right? And so schools like Florida State and Florida um, are going to be the biggest beneficiaries, but also Central Florida that had made that jump um, decades before, right? And so there's a certain kind of um, calculus being employed across the state that has always been discriminatory. So this lawsuit absolutely is a step in the right direction. Um, in terms of critical race theory, critical race theory is, a, you know, I think there's two things. There's actual critical race theory, a, a, theory, a theoretical frame that emerges from law school and legal theory. And then it's the way that it's been used by conservatives uh, in Florida and across the country as a kind of hodgepodge for black history, right? Uh, and anything about race, uh, you know, race studies, if we'd like to say it that way. And so I think that one of the things that, that DeSantis has done is that he's he's really used his position to aggressively, um, you know, use these dog whistles to kind of rile up conservative folks, right? Uh, and so his attack on wokeness is just a, you know, these are just code words for black. These are not new, right? Like this is, you know, Ronald Reagan went into office talking about welfare queens, right? Like that this all this other ideas are euphemisms for. Uh, race and and blackness explicitly uh and so what the state has to do i think is twofold one is one i think this is where florida a m has to be on the front foot they've always been on the front foot of these these uh issues across uh in its history um but they gotta have to file a lawsuit i think that's one and then two i think we have to support our k through 12 um uh, teachers across the state who are doing uh tremendous work and trying to tell the story of um because they're going to be on the front lines they're the ones who are going to face the hostile parents uh one of the things that you guys know as well is that the number of black teachers across this country has dwindled dramatically um and this is i think uh, uh going to impact those numbers even more um and so we've got these you know our black kids in these schools um, with little to no black teachers in them and what does that mean for their kind of learning and development their understanding of the culture. Um, so this is not really about the theory or history. This is about education more broadly and really thinking about how do we think about um, history, America, uh, our communities in real kind of a critical lens in which we think about race and class and gender and sexuality as, as variables of analysis, right? And I think that's really an important part of this equation. But I think this is all gonna, it it's gonna require a kind of courage from parts of the state uh, that um, may not be directly affected. Um, it's gonna also require us to go back into the courtroom, which won't be the first time in the state of Florida or in this country. So have you seen the movie, Where to Invade Next? I have in not. In 2015, huh? No, I have not seen that. Okay. 
All right. Well, I invite everybody that is listening to this conversation to really find the movie and watch it. It is absolutely necessary. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is that uh, in the movie, um, they go to Germany, right? And in Germany, they have monuments that are built around the freaking Holocaust around the Holocaust, the most unspeakable human acts in the history of all mankind. They've got monuments regarding the Holocaust and all of the people that were connected, like this happened here, this happened here, this is what happened here. They've got it all across the country. And then they're teaching about it in, in their schools, not from the standpoint to embarrass the people that live in Germany, but so that that level or that measure of history never repeats itself again. And they were able to get to that point to say, hey, we're going to confront our wicked past. We're going to confront it. Let's talk about it from a healthy standpoint and, and how we got there and what we need to do to make sure that this doesn't happen again. I don't understand why uh, our governmental uh, leaders, our governmental leaders don't understand that. Like they, they do everything within their power. Like it's an attack on their heritage. No, I mean, you didn't personally do it, but your people did it. And that doesn't mean that you necessarily <laughs> were wicked. You don't have to get down on all fours and bow before me, but let's talk about the fact that we have a system, uh, in our country that is systematically geared to assist a certain race of people, whether it be the legal system, whether it be the financial system, whether it be even the educational system, are is everybody operating on a level ground? The answer is no. If they were, the, the inner city kids would have all of the resources that they need to have a quality education, but that's not happening. Why isn't it happening? Why are the worst teachers going to these, you know, these uh, the inner city schools instead of going to, you know, the schools that have parental support, all this other stuff. And it's just, you know, the mindset of where we are right now is a very it's a very crucial time. It's a very dangerous time, but it's most important um, for us to be an informed not just people, but nation, so we understand why this is important and, and what we need to do going forward. I mean, I think the, the some of this lies in just the, 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 the data about voting and who votes for whom, right? That if you look at these last, I don't know, five elections, presidential elections at least, that the Republican Party has been losing the college-educated population, white, black, and other, um, at a tremendous clip. And one thing that, that's always kind of been buried inside of conservatism has been an attack on higher education, right? This is like Nixon called them eggheads. And, um, you know, this was this is not a new phenomenon. But when they look at these, these voting numbers uh, in areas where they feel like they should win in suburbs, uh, places outside of inner cities, um, that they are looking at those numbers and they're like, we have to attack, we have to attack higher education. Now, as a person who works in higher education, everybody thinks about it being like this vast, like progressive uh, liberal space. Uh, 
you know, really what we're doing in arts and humanities is is teaching this history that the history and the scholarship and the literature has transformed itself in particular kinds of ways. Uh, but like the business school is still teaching uh, a particular kind of business, right? They 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 are not talk they are not having alternative discussions about capitalism in the business schools across America, right? And so, um, and so, what do we got to do? I think you're absolutely correct in in discussing uh, this issue in terms of the seriousness, right? That we are facing, right? This is just the the, the latest version of uh, of attack, uh, and we have to steal our communities. Um, we are going to have to go back and, and and teach our, you know, teach our making sure our kids are getting the kinds of educations that they need, whether that's happening in their schools in their after school programs um, in, in their, you know, in their churches. We got to make sure that this is happening in a variety of different spaces because we can no longer count on the, the K through 12 system uh, and eventually even in the higher ed. I think this is going to be. Uh, on on the flip side, I actually think this is going to be a boon for black colleges because black colleges have historically done this. Um, I think back to like 1948 um, uh, at Florida A&M that the, pre the president before George Gore uh, is forced out at Florida A&M. And part of the reason is that the state uh, in 19 in the mid 1940s passes out a survey after World War Two saying, um, do you teach against the laws of segregation? Uh, and the, the the results of this survey from Florida A&M came back like 95% of the faculty and the people who surveyed were like, yes, of course we teach it against the laws of segregation. This is Florida A&M, right? Um, and, uh, and that the state did not take too kindly to this, right? That they thought that this was against, you know, against the policy you're teaching against state law. This is, of course, on the cusp of the civil rights movement. And it cost the president his job. But one of the things that's most interesting and, and one of the things that I remember about this incident is that Doe Campbell, who by no means was the most progressive person in, in the state of Florida, uh, was very clear to this committee that that you cannot press this issue about Florida A&M teaching against the laws of segregation because this is going to make us look bad now his own reasons and rationale for that position may have been self-serving but it definitely requires a you know it required a person of that position of that ilk in those rooms to say this is a bridge too far right and it is also doe campbell's statements that kind of give george gore the space to do the kinds of leadership that he was able to kind of lead on at uh, Florida A&M. And so I think that's an important kind of, you know, space. And to me, it's an important parallel for us to think about going forward uh, in the state of Florida. But this is also going to be coming to everyone's doorstep across the country as we look in state houses all over the country, introducing similar types of legislation. Thank you. Hey, uh, Derek, I know, I know we had a couple more questions. I know I had one and then I think uh, Marcus had one before we let you out of here. Um, so I wanted to go back to the the era of the 60s being referred to as the golden era of black college football. And as I've, you know, as someone who has kind of been paying attention, you know, for the past 25 years, um, I feel like we are right now in what might be a, a, another start to a golden era because of the fact that, you know, we've had 
now uh, folks like Eddie George, Deion Sanders. Uh, we have more access to watch games now uh, other than, you know, one network. But I'm, but I'm also feeling like as college football and college athletics is moving at a rate almost what I feel like two, three times faster than what we are ready for, I'm wondering if we are going to uh, almost in a similar fashion, just in a different way in which uh, desegregation kind of hurt black college athletics. It, 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 are we moving? Is, is the way things are moving potentially going to hurt us? If you had an opportunity to be in a room with college administrators, what might you advise them? What, what has maybe history taught us that we need to do a better job of now in this new era of college athletics so that we don't fall behind and lose like we sort of lost it to some respect, I guess, in the, in the late 70s and 80s, if all that kind of no. makes sense. No, that makes perfectly good sense. I mean, college football is in a in a serious uh, state of flux right now, right? That this that the introduction of NIL has made um, it has brought all the stuff that was happening below the surface above the surface, <laughs> right? Um, and um, you know, and black colleges uh, struggled. For instance, they struggled when it was below the surface, right? That when the schools in the Southeastern Conference and the Southeast were opening their doors to black players for the first time, you know, that one of my favorite quotes was uh, in the book is Rudy Hubbard said something like, you know, my entire Rudy recruiting budget was like $5,000, right? Uh, at one year when he was at Florida and one of his early years. And he was like, I was spending $5,000 on long distance phone calls when I was at Ohio State, right? Like that is the gap that he walked into in terms of resource gap. And that has only grown exponentially over the course of the last 40 or 50 years. And then now when we got NIL, this, this new era is, is reshuffling the deck in real ways. It is given you know, traditional blue blood programs already have the kind of resources and money to step into a world where everything is above board. They've got the the, the companies, the boosters, the programs that are going to allow them to have NIL deals that are going to be profitable for the best players. Um, but it's also going to allow for programs that have not been good in a very long time but want to be good the opportunity to compete in ways that they had not been able to compete in decades. And so a, a program like Nebraska, for instance, that had this great history, this amazing fan base is perhaps poised to now be a major player because they've got, you know, everybody in the state of Nebraska is willing to give for the state of, of, of Nebraska football. And so black colleges are now, you know, who have struggled in the boost, the traditional alumni booster space in terms of raising money. This is one of the things I noticed in the end of my book when I was looking at some of that data. And now they have to add another layer on top of this where we're talking about NIL opportunities. This can be both positive and negative. I think Dion, who had all these uh, connections to corporate world from his playing days, allow for him to to really manipulate that to his advantage. But I don't think every coach at the HBCU level, you know, is going to have that opportunity. Right. And so it's going to be, it's, it's on the kind of uh, the broader network of alumni and fans and boosters to develop their own NIL network, to be competitive. 
Um, that's one, right? And I think that the other part is that, you know, figuring out what does competitive look like at the FCS level, right? I think one of the interesting challenges for Black colleges has been that, you know, their push, one of the Gaither's pushes was to for the entire football program to be considered as part of the entire corpus of, of college football. This, of course, manifests in these larger kind of discussions about 1A and 1AA, which allow FAMU to win the first 1AA national title. But now they have to figure out where do they want to be on the on this on this hierarchy, right? That they've gone decades without, you know, that's not since uh, when '98 uh, when FAMU was in the, the Final Four and lost to Youngstown, the last time a team had actually gone that far in the FCS playoffs, right? And so 99. the question. 99 right so it's got so like how are we going to figure out how you know how where do black colleges want to be do they want to i apologize uh do they want to be part of the um do they want to be part of the celebration bowl where they you know the deal with espn provides them with more money than they would make in the fcs playoffs or do they want to be part of the fcs playoffs do they want to try to make the jump to Division One, which is which has a tremendous amount of cost associated? And so I think that is part of the larger question is figuring out what level do you want to be competitive at? And then what is the cost going to be to be at the upper echelon of that level? Right. And I think that that's, you know, I think that's for each individual program to have to figure out for themselves. Um, and that's a challenge. I don't you know, like and I think that as the college football world is in flux, you know, people are seeing this as an opportunity to move up, but I think there's also dangerous waters up there as well. There are a number of programs that have gone up that have not had been able to sustain the success while other programs who've gone up and been successful. I mean, in the state of Florida, South Florida is a shell of itself, right? It is a, is a program that I want to say in the early 2000s was ranked as high as three or four in the nation. And they have they have shuttled through at least four coaches in the last 10 years. Um, and it is a program that still without a home football stadium, still without any of the kind of facilities, while Central Florida, who was much further behind than South Florida initially, has sprung up and been uh, extremely competitive, right? And so I think that there, those are things. And I think Florida, for Florida A&M, I think what makes the market even more difficult, that the success that Florida A&M had was often tied to not only to segregation, but the success that they had in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s was also because FIU, FAU, Central Florida and South Florida were also not players as well. Right. And so you even when you were not, you know, Florida, Florida State, you were or Miami, you were still the fourth best program in the state. Now you're competing with these other programs that have resources and want to win. Um, and have more scholarships, right? They're, because they're all Division One programs, and so they're able to offer. And so, you know, the ability to find uh, players that have been overlooked in the state of Florida has been compounded by the success of Florida. Every school in the country recruits Florida. I mean, if you look at every roster, you're like, you know, how does Idaho have a kid from Florida? Like, you're asking yourself these kinds <laughs> of questions all the time. Like, who's recruiting Florida for Idaho, right? I worked at Dartmouth pre uh, previously. And we had at the FCS level, we had every year, probably for the six years that I worked there, we probably recruited anywhere between, you know, 
three and six kids from the state of Florida to Dartmouth every year. Right. And so like, you know, that is the process that now every school in the country is trying to get in on the things that, that Gaither knew already existed. Right. That's that was what made his program so well. And now every school in the country, every school in the Big Ten, uh, every major conference, every FCS school. And so the competition for Florida A&M is so intense. And so the figuring out how to compete in this new marketplace is a, is a challenge for any administrator. Uh, and I think that you guys are well positioned because I think you guys are, are, are have been trending in the right direction. But I think that there are other schools are have like, you know, Bethune Cookman's problems are, are not on the athletic side, but they're a corpus of the entire process of higher education that small private schools across the country are closing down. I worked in New England. We, we lost five or six schools in the last 10 years, small private schools that were church funded, that didn't have big endowments. Like these things are all happening all over the country. And so black colleges on a case by case scenario uh, are having to deal with these issues. Wow, appreciate that, Marcus. I'm gonna give you the last uh, last question for for tonight with uh, with uh, Dr. White. All right, thanks. I actually have a double question. You guys in these double questions? And I don't know if I can. Saying. Question was um, <laughs> how do we how do we preserve? And even if you listen to Ken Riley's seconds um, interview, and he talked about how even Terry Mickens, someone who else played also played in the NFL for a little while for the Packers didn't know about Ken Riley. And you also, I guess, parallel uh, Kofi's question about losing history. How do we as HBCUs, and I guess in particular FAMU, make sure we preserve and promote the history that we had because there is a, such a gap with the folks of younger generations in terms of understanding FAMU's value, understanding the players. And in fact, um, I don't know, and, and Kofi and Kelvin, correct me. I don't know if we have any memorial to Bob Hayes, our first uh, Hall of Famer, and if there's any plans for Ken Riley. Do we have anything that memorializes them on campus that would help to proliferate and reinforce the history of family football and family athletics and across HBCUs as a whole? So what can we do to do that? And I guess my second question is kind of deviation and maybe a little something that would drop a bomb and run, but uh, what do you think about all these um, – uh celebrity coaches coming back trying to get on oh. hbcus the first one i can answer uh you could all buy blood sweat and tears that's be the first thing <laughs> i would recommend you do uh if you want to do the history uh <laughs> um but no in, in all seriousness i think that the fam you like, this is a problem across black colleges right that that the the most fervent fans know this history but these students are born in like my my undergrads are born in like 2004 right like you gotta like for them they they don't remember like it, they don't remember 9 11 right like so for them like that is something for you so you to talk about you know jake gaither in six you know who finished coaching in 69 like you have to tell the story of this institution right and i think that one of the things that 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 has got to be part and parcel of and that just can't be a fam you story that's got to be like a black history story right that has to be part and part you know like althea gibson and andre dawson like this seems to be bob hayes not only in football but also in track like that has to be part and parcel of this longer history 
of of telling what Florida A&M has been able to do, you know, whether it's about Dr. Humphreys, right, and the kind of thing that, you know, FAMU was time school of the year, right? That's the reason my brother went there, right? Like he saw this on the Time magazine, right? And he's like, this is, they got a business program that's as good as Penn, right? Like this is the kind of thing that, that that has to be, you have to sing your own praises because if you don't, um, no one else will. And in this context, going back to um, Kofi's comment about the, the governor, right? We're trying to eliminate history uh, altogether, right? So we're not just talking about, not talking about Rosewood or the Moors or any of this other stuff. We're talking about all black history being, you know, a race. And so FAMU, it, it, its history has to be you have to be the champion of that history in lots of different kinds of ways. The second thing about these celebrity coaches, ah, oh, this is a tough one. I'm, how much time do I have? Um, the, the, the long is short of it. Two minutes, two minutes, give me two minutes, two minutes. The two minutes version is, um, I think um, it is both potential. Uh, it has a lot of potential, but it has a lot of pitfall, potential pitfalls as well. Right. And, you know, the best case scenario is, you know, the little bit that Tom, the Dion did because he had a national brand. Uh, he could he could really hype the the his institution. But it also brought a lot of people to see, you know, Dion is a polarizing figure. So people are rooting for against him as much for him. Right. And so that's that kind of rivalry. Um, you know, Dion had the potential to be that, you know, the comp I made for him uh, on another uh, podcast was uh, he's like John Merritt, right? Like John Merritt was the person who like, you know, Coach Robinson <laughs> yeah. didn't like him and Coach Gaither didn't like him. Yes. Like, like it was yes. like, it was like a thing like, like they didn't, cause he was way too brash and he was smoking that cigar and he didn't want, you know, he's pulling them dudes out of Houston. And he cheated. And he like, <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I'm not, I'm not here to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they did not they did not like him right and i think but that but, but at the same time those tennessee t state teams were carrying the banner in the early 70s for black college football right those eldridge dickey teams in the late 60s all to two tall jump like those teams yeah. were fascinating in terms of they played against um San Diego State, Don Coriel was the head coach of that, who's also going into the Hall of Fame this year. He, you know, they had a they had the first in-game home and away series between a PWI and a HBCU was them on a regular basis. And like, and that was a that was an important kind of contribution, right? Um Rudy Hubbard came into the league, and his first thing is I gotta bring, I gotta attack. You know, I got to tag Coach Merritt because he knew that he was at the top of this mountain. And if I wanted to get the MU there, he was always nipping at his heels. Right. And so Dion had a lot of that kind of personality. And it's a shame that, you know, for all the the God telling him to come to HBCUs, that he also told him to go to Colorado at, with the same quickness. <laughs> um, and now so I think talk that, about God. <laughs> you can't talk about God no more. Um, and so, like, you know, I think that there is something there's something um, a missed opportunity for the broader culture. And so I think what Eddie George has done, which has been a much more a much slower burn. Uh, I like to have see him have some, you know, some success on the field. But he's really taken the time to understand the kind of the 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 depths of but not only the history of Tennessee State, but also the kind of challenges that the school faces. And I think it's just going to require that kind of a touch. Uh, and so it can go both ways. I think obviously the Ed Reed thing was um, 
was was not successful uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and I think that the 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 biggest weakness, and I'll end here, of celebrity coaches is that they they come from a kind of deficit model. That mm. they they are the coach here to come and save black colleges rather than saying, you know. I, Right. Like I can come here and make this contribution. I can bring something to the table that needs to happen. But like, you know, it, it treats these these institutions as if somehow they're failing. Um, and and I think that it overstates their potential and possibility. Uh, and so I think that's kind of a big flaw. That's why I do appreciate the way Eddie George has kind of approached uh, this issue. He said, you know, he's it's a challenge and opportunity. And I think he's done a really good job in terms of how he's handled himself. I agree. I agree 100% with you on uh, the way Eddie George, uh, that, that is the voice that I feel like mainstreams should be. If you want to listen to a celebrity coach that the way he's, the way he's been saying it lately and the way he's been talking about it is what his voice needs to be echoed louder. So um, I agree with you. Uh, Hey, uh, we appreciate the time uh, this evening. Great conversation. Um, Let people know how they can find you, how they can follow you. And again, plugs plugs for the book please uh, you know you got time marcus will hold up the uh yeah. you know, get the lighting right marcus get the lighting right you gotta make sure we get the lighting right all right yeah the fight for that cover i told when they came back with the first thing i was like i don't care what colors on this book but they better be green and orange on there somewhere so they did a great job where did University you find that where did you find that photo that photo where where did that come from that uh um for the cover? them at the board yeah, the the it was yeah. actually in the Florida State Archives. They had a series of photos. I had before I had even finished the book. I was like, man, I really want this to be on the cover. Um, I, at the top of the at the top of the chalkboard, he's got blood, sweat, and tears written on the top of the chalkboard, which is like, you know, when I was looking, like I was like, this is the perfect. This is what I want out of this book in the cover. So, right. Um, but yeah, you get the book at you know obviously at your local bookstore, Barnes and Nobles. Uh, uh, Amazon, obviously, or Black-owned bookstores. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Blackstar1906. You can also find me on, uh, I have a podcast with my friend and colleague who's a sports historian, Lou Moore, the Black Athlete Podcast. So you can come check us out where we discuss uh, contemporary issues and put them in kind of historical context. Well, uh, when, do you, when, is that, uh, when does that podcast air? How often do you guys uh, do that? So we're we're trying to do it twice a month. We have uh, regular academic jobs that uh, we are not as frequent <laughs> as we would love to be. But um, but we also we try not to chase the moment. We also try to really think about these uh, issues and kind of you rely and lean in on our expertise to think about these issues. And we have some great guests come in and some great scholars of sport and race and who are doing some fantastic stuff. So that's kind of what we do. All right. All right. Well, again, uh... Professor Derek White, ladies and gentlemen, make sure to follow. Make sure that if you haven't bought the book, buy the book, or you may just buy the book for for a uh, for a friend, uh, somebody who loves FAMU, loves FAMU athletics. Buy it for a young person. You know, now's the time. This Black History Month. Go buy it for a young person and educate them. Give them an opportunity to learn about FAMU from a different perspective uh, through the prism of its great athletic history. So. Uh, 
I think that's what I'm going to do. I, I'm, I, I like to buy a book for myself, my pops, and I may have to buy one for a student of mine at, at, at my school. So, uh, hey, uh, Dr. White, thank you for your time this evening. And, you, uh, hey, anytime, anytime there's an opportunity to talk again, we'd love to do it. All right. That sounds great. Thank you for having all right, me. All right. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank Good you. Um, we will we will stay here and close the show, Producer Roy, because I know we only got a couple more minutes here before we sign off. Uh, so while we've got uh, uh, just uh, just a few of us here uh, this weekend, we've got uh, basketball uh, basketball trip to Alabama. Um, uh, Kelvin, tell us tell us a little. <laughs> Yeah, we're not going to talk about the games this past weekend. I'm not going to talk about the games this weekend. We got to go play. The teams are 5-18 and 18 Jesus. overall, 3-10 and 10 in conference play. But the scary part, Kofi, both teams really aren't, quote-unquote, out of it just yet. There's five games left. Lightning Why do you continue a- to beat this horse? <laughs> we don't, we're not going to win the title this year, dog. We're the women are not going to beat Jackson State. Wait I would rather now. Uh, it's about winning look, title. No, you said, I don't even want to talk said, about. But well, hey, hey, Kelvin, I, what did he look, say at the beginning of the season? Get to the tournament. He didn't say nothing about winning the tournament, did he? No, did we, no, we never thought we was going to win. No, we never thought we was going to win the tournament. Absolutely we not. We just said we were trying to get to it. Get Getting to it, right? To it would be a possible, you know, would be an accomplishment. But at this point, here's here's my point, bro. We are at a we are at a point right now where we really have to do. Um, I want to say we, we really be- have to ask some questions. A, yeah. What kind of basketball program do we want to be? Do we just want a basketball program to have a basketball program? Or do we want a basketball program that, A, is going to generate revenue because people want to leave their homes and come and watch the teams play? B, do we want a revenue-generating program that is going to to win championships? Or C, do we just want a program for the sake of having a program to say we got one? And if we're going to get to the spot where for me it's 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 we i want a championship winning program that generates revenue i feel like if we are bringing thirty thousand people to homecoming surely at some point we should be able to draw six seven thousand people at least twice a year but part of that At is also so. on our athletic administration to do a better Absolutely. job of marketing it and is. promoting. It's not just the games. It's not just the performance. I know it hasn't been up to par, but the support, the 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 marketing, the information. We have to go back to way when we were on campus. The students need to know. They need to be beat over the head. They need to be sent text messages. They need to be sent. Look, we can do all the post-game TikToks and all the Instagram, but how about doing some TikToks that actually promote what time the game is, where the game is, how much it costs. Yeah, it's free. Hey, you know, hey, that, hey that Brian. Kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's more than that, and I'm going to try to be real quick with this. So, 
Um, I, I did some research and I provided the records of uh, both the men and women team over the past ten years. Right, just ten years. That's a lot of that's a lot of bad basketball. That's a lot of bad basketball. And um, then you take the first part of the season where we playing all these out of conference beatdown games, and you don't even play at home. And the only time you do play at home, you play a couple of D two schools. Um, it's tough to sell that to the students in the community. So what Dr. White was saying, um, he had, he had, he had the ball out the park. We have to look at how we, what we want to be in, in athletics, but, but, you know, just talking about how many people we bring a homecoming and et cetera, basketball, we have not invested in, we just got the, since we've had uh Lawson center, uh, we, we've not had r really good teams for the most part. We've had one or two exceptions. We've not had great coaching, um, to be frank. Um, and we've had a lot of administrative changes and turnovers. And, you know, we have limited access. So there's a whole lot of things working against it. And until though we have a vision and, and that structure in place to address all those other things, um, we, we are who we are um, in terms of the teams this year and the coaches this year. The only thing I say is this, as someone who sat through most of the out-of-conference games, I would tell you, I, I didn't make it to the game mon Monday. And part of, part of the reason, I'm just being honest, I, I'm tired of watching these teams, frankly. Now, I'll be back for the last two two games and so forth, but there's other things I can do with my time. and and so just me being there to support the team and the coaches ain't enough for me all the time. Sometimes I, I want to see a good product. I want to see good marketing, in-game marketing. Uh, you know, the concessions haven't been too bad this year. Uh, they've been consistent at least. But um, I, I just want to see more, and, and, and it's just tough. I'm just being honest. It's, it's tough. You, you got you got a three points a specialist that don't even touch the floor right in one game doesn't even touch the floor I don't know what what the issue is and I'm I'm and everybody who's sitting around everybody know this right everybody looking like what is his problem with this particular kid that's what people see now as you got something against a kid and and, and with no explanation man this the teams both teams men and women are a little bit better than what their record shows, but they, they, they haven't been helped with the lineup changes and, 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 and how they've been coached. And I leave it there. Look, so we, I'm gonna say no, this. the crazy part me, is nobody. Go, go ahead, Kofi, go ahead. No, my point is, is this, you know, at some point you have to address and just ask the question, is this the best that we can do coaching wise? And I think that that's fair because, A, since our time here over the last 12 years, not only have we not finished first ever since 1978, you know, we haven't even finished second in the SWAC or the MIAC in a long time. It's been a long time. Not to mention, Jackson State's athletic budget is less than ours. 
is smaller. Their budget is smaller than our budget. They beat us in men's basketball. They beat us in women's basketball. They beat us in women's tennis. They beaten us. The only sport that we can really say that we got bragging rights is volleyball. Mm -hmm. You know, wow. and again, these these games are extra close. Like the 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 men's game, we should have won. We should have beat Alcorn on Monday. Yes. We didn't do yes. it. Yes. When you have close games like that, your coaching is supposed to get you over the hump to find the right lineup, to find the right matchup, to get the basket that you need to win the game. You know, and we haven't sniffed even the top three in either conference, MEAC or SWAT. Top four, possibly. But top three, come on, man. This, if we are who we think we are, who we say that we are, and who we can be, everybody looks at our arenas like, oh my God, but you see that the arena don't win the darn game. No. <laughs> it could with a good crowd there. Could help you yeah, win. Could they, help you win a could help you with a few points. You know, being a part of Rattler Nation, you know how we are. And yes, marketing needs to step up. Hey, but hey, you hey, know the crowd, us, the crowd don't win games either. Yeah, you, six but, man, but it does generate revenue so that theory. you can you can you can create a kind hey, of a lot of NBA, there's a lot of NBA teams. There's a lot of NBA teams that got full arenas that, that ain't winning jack. Mm -hmm. uh, Kofi uh, brings up a good point. Kofi brings up a good point. And I know both of y'all, actually all three of y'all said that in terms of the athletic team that has the best potential with the least amount of just in general for college is college basketball in terms of getting a couple of different players to get some excitement and you can turn it around really quick. So how do we go about doing that? And I just looked it up while we were talking. Coach Pillow has got an extension in 2021, so her contract is good through 2024. I didn't know if something was going to happen with during the first year of uh, AD sites, but it looks like she's at least got one year. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, so we can't afford to get, we can't, first off, we can't afford to get rid of either coach. They got oh, no. a year oh, or no. two left. So no, that's what I was looking. I was checking this because originally she had a three year contract. So I was checking to see if it was if this was her last year or not, but she got an extension at least through twenty twenty four. And I didn't look I think um Coach McCollum did as well. So that's the question. How do we turn this around? And I know he spoke even to about his recruiting budget and how he's kind of limited to region, regional recruiting, basically Georgia, Alabama. In Florida. Yeah, but I'm gonna tell and you, it, even with that, history has Atlanta of, has tons. There's a lot of talent. Yeah, there's a lot of talent in the region which ain't being contacted. Trust me, as a Jacksonville has tons. I know. TCC is the number one junior college. TCC is the number one junior college in the nation right now. He just beat the number one junior college. Uh, and in their conference is one of the top in in, in the nation every year. Uh, Florida High has a Florida High McClay here in Tallahassee. Both are championship caliber programs. Uh, you know, from Jacksonville to Pensacola to Atlanta, there's plenty of talent. And as I stated, there's talent on 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 this team. It you know it ain't elite talent, but there's there's talent where we can beat the teams we're playing, and um and we just not maximizing that by putting in the right lineups and and. And offenses, that, that, and defense. That yeah. that part, yeah, I agree. Look, I, I want to bring out. What's the coach's name that's at Langston? 
Marcus, right. you look that up real quick? I know the name. I've talked to him many a time. I mean, Chris Wright, formerly at Talladega, at where he Durham, won championship Talladega. at Talladega. Went to the national Talladega, championship game last a year. A school with 300 people. Hell of a coach. Hell of a recruiter, too. I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean. Hey, look, look, look. Let me, go let me, let me, let me I want to highlight this, this, this quickly before we wrap this last 10 years stuff that you did because it is eye-opening. Relevant. Over the past 10 years. Relevant, yes. Eye-opening, too. Over the last 10 years in a men's basketball program, we have not had a plus 500 win season. The closest we got was the 2019-2020 season where we finished the season 12 and 15. Of the past 10 years in the men's program, we've only had four years where we finished plus 500 in the conference record. And two of those seasons was actually double digits. Last year where we were 11 and seven and two years before that uh, in the MEAC where we were 10 and six. So we did have, up until this year, we had a four-year run of finishing better than 500 in our conference season. So <clears throat> that's that was good. The problem was this team, mm, super new, too new, and, and coach has not had an opportunity to sort of figure it out. Now, how many coaches is that in the 10 years? Three? Start. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah, three. And, yeah, so so in the ten year period, there three three coaches. The most successful of the three is currently the head coach, Coach, coach McCollum. Okay, now going over to what you did over in the men's when you uh, the women's when you looked at the women's over the past ten years. Uh, now this would also include a uh, stint with uh, Coach Gibson. Now she had a couple of seasons where we were just over 500, but there was only two of them. That was 2013, 2014, where we finished 14 and 12. And then uh, 2015 and 16, where 15 and 14 was the final record. Both of those seasons, we were plus 500. But things have not gone well ever since the 2018-19 season, where we were 3 and 24. Then we were six and twenty-one. The COVID year happened. Uh, Coach um, Pillow first year was three and twenty-five. This year is five and eighteen. Now you guys will, you guys will, some people will poo-poo this, but uh, as 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 my uh, as my good friend over at uh, Fangs Up uh, uh, said, uh, we are we are three games away from doubling up pretty much our output from a year ago. I mean, she's got five wins overall. This staff has five wins. It's building. This thing was a teardown, and it's a buildup. I, I know y'all don't want to hear that. I know you don't want to hear it, but I continue <laughs> to tell off you. His <laughs> it was a teardown from the COVID year. Okay, fine. Up, oh, sorry, can't hear you. Sorry, can't hear you. Uh, close the show. The producer says she close the show. All right. Anyway, I'm just look. Uh, this week is Saturday. Saturday, where are we are we Alabama, uh, Alabama State on Saturday. Which one? Who cares? 
Somebody does. We should. We, we play. Should yeah, we play. We play Alabama State on um, the eighteenth, and then okay, so the A&M on Monday. All right. So Saturday is Alabama State. Monday is Alabama A&M. That's President's Day. I would encourage Rattler Nation to go. Uh, you know, don't be discouraged. These are winnable games. A&M and State, they're, they're, they're solid programs, but we can beat them. We, that's, just cra- that's what's crazy about this, guys. With the exception of Jackson State and the women, and maybe even Alcorn. Alcorn was the number one team. We hung we with them. We, if, coach can, if Coach will ever figure out what he wants to do, if that staff of his would ever figure out what they want to do with that with the lineups, I don't care if you got to go to analytics school or go over and figure out, do the math, do the plus minus, get on Ken Palm, figure it out. I, somehow figure out the lineup that's going to be the most efficient lineup and do that. If nothing else, do that for the last five, six games of the season. What else? What do we got to lose? We got nothing to lose. I get And the women's stuff, hey, we got a new way. Hey, we have a we hired a new health and health and strength and conditioning person in athletics, correct? We need that person to get over there to the our women's basketball program and figure out why they keep dropping like flies. I'm I'm just kind of worried about the health of our women's basketball program. How every day we only got seven or eight players. And we got a roster of 14, 15 girls. All right. I'm done. Uh, Marcus, any final thoughts before, as we close the show here? No, I'm just thankful for um, Ken Riley second and uh, Derek White coming on and giving us some insight. And um, just keep striking. It's, it's tough, you know, with the basketball. But softball's here. Baseball's here. So, you know. I didn't mean to. It, we didn't mean, I feel like we. I felt like I brought down the show. I think we brought down the show by talking about basketball. I'm sorry, guys. I just wanted to call attention no. to where they were going, and then we got in the. You know, it's no, just, no, no. We we got we, we got to have uncomfortable conversations. Hmm. Sometimes you know it is what it is. Yeah, uh, Kofi, uh, turn on your audio. Final thoughts, please. Anyway, all right, Kofi's, he's, I don't know what he's, uh, he's mouthing something. It's dead, they're dead, we're dead. And gotta go. You know, no, seriously, let me say this. I love, let me say this. The buyout, you fork over that buyout. Go ahead. Let me say this. I love, I love Coach McCullum. I really do. He was one of the, when I, when I did the voice of Bragg, he was, as personable as personable could be. Anytime I wanted to talk, I did a Facebook Live with him. He's always been welcoming. Uh, but he's also been realistic about um, our investment as a school when it comes to our basketball program. And, you know, we say as fam viewers, we want to win. We, we want to, yeah. But you got to have skin in the game on some level if you want to win. And that starts with our university administration. I'm not going to bash Dr. Robinson and those, but they need to give us some more support. When you're talking about hiring assistant coaches, you know, and you're paying them only $35,000 a year, you're not going to attract top level assistant coaches to come to your, to come to your squad, you know, uh, to come to your team, to be a part of the team, unless they are really, really, really desperate and on the come up. 
you know. But my point is, at some point, the, 2023 has to be the year that we have to look at it seriously and be like, what do we really want? What do we really, really want? We got to at least have a darn winning season. You know, and we haven't, we... <laughs> <laughs> we haven't done that. We got Oregon coming here next year. Oregon from the Pac-10 is coming to Lawson. Are we just going? Are we just playing the game? Or are we trying to win? So you know, at what point do we take basketball seriously and do what we need to do? Do what we need to do to make sure. <laughs> that we have a squad that was jesus on the main line that we have a squad even better that can win the game hello jesus yes Lord. i'm sorry put jesus on hold you're not putting him on hold i'm sorry all right guys i gotta go because jesus is all right let me stop Kelvin. Kelvin. Um, oh i'm sorry go ahead no, I mean we got to do better, man. This is unacceptable. Okay. What we have, what okay. we have seen, and what it's, we've done. It's a bad and product. We gotta do it's it's hey, a bad we, product. Hey, no matter, no matter who the fault, it's bad product right now, and has been over the it's last ten valid. years. It has. We're not Valley, though. We're not Valley. Just, just keep telling yourself Hello? that we're not Valley. We're not the worst team in the no. swag. We're not even the that, second that, worst team in the swag. That, that, that don't work for uh, me. I, I ain't looking at the bottom. I'm looking up. I'm not looking at the bottom. Well, I'm, look, I'm, I'm looking just, at the ceiling. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm looking at the sky. I'm real. Hey, guys, I got to go. Real. All right, yeah. brother. All right. All right. All right. He's got to leave Bye. early. Right. He's got to leave early. We're going we're gonna to wrap up the show. Um, thanks again to uh, Ken Riley, the second, for joining us. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you to – uh, Professor Derek White for joining us as well. Yeah, you got to log out, Kofi. There you go. All right. Um, and uh, Marcus, uh, appreciate everything. Yeah, see, B Stark said, no, we never hear anything about basketball recruiting, so we have to fill that gap. We got we, we signed a couple guys. Yeah, we uh, – yeah, we, we'll, we'll talk about that. I got some thoughts on that. But anyway, we uh, – <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are putting together. We're, we're try, we were talking. We we're talking on the back lines, trying to figure out. We're going to do a, a deep dive on the football recruiting recap. Uh, Y'all may have to, you know, we may have to pony up a little bit for it, though. I'm just letting you know. All this extra work, Marcus put together. We're going to put a quality product out there. Uh, we may need you guys to support. You know, I know you guys always come through as you did when we dropped the schedule information. But I'm just telling you now, the deep dive on the football uh, recruiting class, you know, we may we may put a little something up behind that. Put that up. You know, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it and see what we do. So um, that's going to do it for tonight's show. Uh, for Marcus, Kofi, Kelvin, producer Roy, thank you guys. Everybody in the chat room, thanks for being a part of the conversation. YouTube, Facebook, share the show with a Rattler. Share the show with a friend. Let them know about our show on YouTube. Make sure you're following us on all the social media streams, wherever we are, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, so on and so forth. And uh, go check out the BCSN Pod Zone, the audio-only version of the podcast. We are part of the Black College Sports Network Pod Zone. That's BCSN Pod Zone. Producer Roy, do I have time to do a read? 
we got to definitely thank our sponsors uh, for for being a part of this. That is the second annual Black Business Expo Tallahassee, which takes place on February 25th at the moon and is brought to you by Mega Ace Media and the Tallahassee Leon County Office of Economic Vitality. The Black Business Expo will feature financial institutions, agencies, and larger businesses looking to partner with your Black business. Tallahassee Mayor John Daly and Leon County Commission Chair Nick Maddox are the special guests for the event, and they'll be there to hear what goes on in our businesses. We'll give out $15,000 in grants, and we definitely know we could use that money this time of the year. For more information, visit us online at bbetally.com. Dot com. That's bbetally.com. All right, folks, that's going to do it. Thanks again. Shout out to all, everybody out there. Um, and uh, we'll see you guys next Wednesday. Be safe out in those streets. Alabama Rattler Nation, Dr. Lori, rally up the people in Alabama. Y'all go support uh, the, the Rattler men and women this weekend. And softball team, another great weekend. <coughs> <coughs> Baseball, yeah, baseball at home. Baseball at home this weekend. So we got plenty to talk about next week. That's it. I'm out of here. Uh, peace out, Rattler Nation.